Genomics Revolution. This is Brad Goodner. Welcome back to Genomics Revolution. To fully understand the impact of having an organism's complete DNA sequence, what we call its genome, we need to put it into the proper context set up by the previous 150 years. Genetics as an experimental science got its start in the middle of the 19th century with Mendel's inheritance trials on pea plant phenotypes and with Meischer's biochemical isolation of what he called nuclein, what we now call DNA. Mendel's ideas on the rules of inheritance in sexually reproducing eukaryotes was later generalized into the concept of a gene as a definable unit of genetic information controlling a particular phenotype, well before DNA was confirmed as a genetic material. The work of Beetle and Tatum cemented this concept into one gene encodes one protein, which catalyzes one particular biochemical reaction, typically one step in a biochemical pathway. For most of the 20th century, scientists studied one gene at a time. Their typical approach involved isolating mutants, individual organisms with one or more mutations in a gene of interest that had a noticeable impact on a particular phenotype, how the organism looked or acted. Mutations are nothing more than changes in a DNA sequence, but we did not have ways to determine a DNA sequence until the 1960s. Scientists figured out that changes in a DNA sequence can potentially change the sequence of amino acid residues in a protein encoded by that DNA sequence. By the time I was in high school in the late 1970s, two groups had worked out methods that allowed labs all over the world to sequence DNA routinely. One method, the Maxim-Gilbert chemical method, started with a DNA strand labeled at one end with a radioactive phosphorus in the 5' phosphate group. Four tubes containing large amounts of the labeled DNA strand are each exposed to different chemical conditions that leads to breaks in a DNA strand at specific nucleotide residues. In one tube, breaks occurred at purine nucleotide residues. Remember that A and G are the bases in purine nucleotides. In another tube, breaks occur only at G residues. In a third tube, breaks occur at pyrimidines, C's and T's, and in a fourth tube, breaks occur only at C residues. Imagine a DNA strand 24 nucleotide residues long with A, C, G, and T residues alternating. A, C, G, T, A, C, G, T, A, C, G, T, and so on. In the first tube, breaks will be induced at A or G purines. Some of the DNA strands will be broken at position one, others at position three, others at position 5, position 7, and so on. In the second tube, where breaks only occur at G residues, some of the strands will be broken at position 3, others at 7, and so on at a 4-base interval. In the third tube, breaks will occur at C or T pyrimidines. Some DNA strands will be broken at position 2, others at 4, and so on. And finally, in the fourth tube, breaks will occur at C residues, at positions 4, others at position 8, and so on at a 4-base interval. If we run the contents of each DNA fragments out through a jello-like sieving matrix that separates DNA molecules on the basis of size, the smallest fragments will run the fastest. 
Remember our starting DNA strand, a 20-former, ACGT, 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 and so on. The fragment at breaking at position 1 will run the fastest and will show up only in the tube 1 lane. The fragment breaking at position 2 will be next, but it will show up in both the tube 3 and tube 4 lanes. You could usually get about 200, 100 to 200 bases of sequence read from one gel run. Several reactions to carry out, lots of radioactivity that no one really wanted to be exposed to. In 1979, Sutcliffe published the complete DNA sequence of one of the earliest recombinant DNA molecules, the cloning plasmid PBR322. Plasmids are non-essential extra DNA molecules, usually circles, found in bacteria, archaea, and in a few eukaryotes. The plasmid PBR322 is a man-made recombinant molecule built from several natural DNA pieces. Sutcliffe sequenced PBR322 using the Maxim-Gilbert chemical method. It turned out to be 4,362 base pairs long, one of the first DNA sequences I worked with when I started graduate school in 1983. The next year, I went to my first research conference, where I heard Richard Barker give a talk about the sequence of a key DNA molecule, the tDNA, or transferred DNA, is a piece of bacterial DNA involved in a plant disease called crown gall. Barker had almost single-handedly used the Maxim-Gilbert chemical method to determine a sequence of 24,595 nucleotide residues that encoded 14-plus proteins. This was a tremendous feat at the time. My fellow grad students and I were awed, but we also fearfully joked that we hoped Barker had already sired his children because of all the radioactivity and nasty chemicals involved. Because of these risks, the Maxim-Gilbert chemical method lost out over time to an enzymatic method of DNA synthesis perfected by Fred Sanger and colleagues. Sanger's group built their enzymatic method around the way that cells naturally make DNA, new DNA strands by using the enzyme DNA polymerase. This enzyme needs three components to build a new DNA strand. One, an old single strand of DNA is needed as a template. The template strand is complementary to the new strand that will be made. By that, I mean A's on the template strand will interact with T's on the new strand and vice versa. G's on the template strand will interact with C's on the new strand and vice versa. Two, DNA polymerase cannot start a new DNA strand from scratch. Rather, it has to add on to a pre-existing piece of single-stranded RNA in the cell or a piece of single-stranded DNA in the test tube. This starting piece is called a sequencing primer. By choosing the right sequencing primer, one can determine the sequence at different places along a large DNA strand. Three, DNA polymerase catalyzes the formation of a new DNA strand using deoxyribonucleotides, the monomer subunits in a DNA strand polymer. In the Sanger enzymatic method, four tubes are set up with the same template DNA strand, the same starting complementary sequencing primer, and all four deoxyribonucleotides. The sequencing primer carried a radioactive label on one end. In the first tube, a little bit of a modified A nucleotide was added to the four nucleotides already present. This A was different in that it, once it was added onto a growing DNA strand, 
no more nucleotides could be added to it. So in this tube, the new DNA strands will each end with a modified A residue. But since the modified A is rare, the termination of DNA strand growth will be rare and random in terms of which A is the termination point. In the second tube, a little bit of a modified C nucleotide was added. A little bit of modified G in tube three and a little bit of modified T in tube four. Similar to the Maxim-Gilbert chemical method, the final labeled DNA strands in each tube were separated by size by running them through a jello-like sieving matrix called a sequencing gel. If we consider the same 24 base long DNA strand as before, ACGT, 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 and so on, then the lane on the sequencing gel, using the results from tube one, will show labeled fragments of the sequencing primer plus one, plus five, plus nine, plus 13, plus 17, and plus 21 in size. The lane for results from tube two will show fragments of the sequencing primer plus two, plus six, plus 10, plus 14, plus 18, and plus 22 in size. Eventually, the Sanger method became the method of choice for automated DNA sequencing machines and the radioactivity involved was replaced with four different fluorescent tags added to the four modified DNA terminating nucleotides. A laser at the end of the sequencing gel excites the fluorescent tag on each DNA molecule as it exits, and the resulting fluorescence color tells us which nucleotide was at the end of the fragment. In 1978, Sanger and co-workers published a paper reporting the complete sequence of the DNA virus PhiX174, the first viral genome ever sequenced. The viral DNA of 5,386 nucleotide residues encodes 10 proteins. In 1982, the U.S. National Institutes of Health, NIH, established a public database for DNA and protein sequences that came to be known as GenBank. By the end of 1982, there were 606 DNA sequences deposited in GenBank totaling around 680,000 base pairs. Within a year, the amount of DNA labeled, or sorry, available, had tripled. By the end of 1987, there were over 10 million bases of DNA sequences deposited. By 1992, there were over 100 million bases available in GenBank. Most scientists sequenced just one to a few genes at a time, but change was coming, and in 1995, it happened. More on that in later episodes. See you next time.